0: This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Today's guest, Dr. David Katz, needs both no introduction for a lot of folks, and he requires a huge long introduction because of his incredibly productive career. He's the president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He's the editor in chief of Childhood Obesity Journal. He holds five US patents. He'd written 15 books, hundreds of peer reviewed articles, thousands of popular articles and blog posts. And he is one of the founders of the Glimmer Initiative, which we will talk about during the interview. I came across Dr. Katz's work when his brilliant analyses of crazy nutritional policy started making their way onto my Facebook feed. And his main argument is this fully 80% of all chronic disease and associated premature death around the world is preventable with uncontroversial knowledge we already have. The trouble is this uncontroversial knowledge is not interesting to our media. And there's a lot of money pouring in the marketing of exciting and tantalizing contradiction. Uh, by, as Dr. Katz calls them, the pushers of glow-in-the-dark marshmallows for breakfast. This interview, I believe, will save lives, so I'm thrilled to be the conduit to present his work to you. So without further ado, Dr. David Katz, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Howard. Good to be with you.
0: Yeah, so I, I'll, there's a whole bunch of things we could talk about, and the more I I read of your work online, and the more of your book I read, and your articles, I realized this this interview could go in like forty or fifty different directions. Um, I'd love to, I, I just love to start by kind of giving my audience a sense of. of who my guests are and what's important to them. So you you mentioned you all, in your book that you always knew you were going into medicine. Can you give us a little bit of your of your backstory and and how come you're passionate about helping people be well?
1: Sure. Well, you know, to some extent, it, it's a very personal backstory. My dad's a cardiologist. I always admired him and 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 what he did, uh, the, the power of intervening. Mm-hmm. When people need it most, being involved in literally life and death decision-making was very compelling. I was a rambunctious kid who managed to injure myself a number of times, never seriously, but often enough to warrant trips to the emergency room and the attention of orthopedists who put me back together a number of times. I was always impressed with what medicine could do. The combination of high-tech and kind touch called out to me, and I was just raised to be, uh, I guess, Calvinist. You know, the, the, the notion that you really you needed to work hard and, uh, and and essentially leverage the advantages that, that you have in life to contribute something back. So medicine satisfied all of those requirements. I, it was also very, very important to me to have autonomy. Uh, I love working with teams, but I'm not terrific at having a boss. And And so <laughs> medicine provides that kind of autonomy. You know, it's interesting. We often, I think, talk about the... Loftier elements of our career choices. But I think, you know, ultimately we, we want to enjoy what we do. And so some of the decision making is just about our, our character attributes. Uh, I need to be autonomous. And, and so that was an important factor. I love to study. I love to learn. Uh, so the lifelong learning of medicine called out to me. So medicine, you know, it was a, it was a, a sort of an obvious choice. And then in medicine, Um, is where I really discovered what I wanted to be when I grew up because, you know, when you train in internal medicine, Howard, you're you're in the hospital for 100 hours a week or more taking care of really sick people. And because I'm sort of a big-picture person, I wasn't just involved in the details of each individual patient. I was also kind of stepping back, looking at the patterns in the hospital and appreciating the fact that, eight out of ten of these people never needed to get that sick in the first place if we had simply leveraged what we've long known about the power of lifestyle as medicine. So I trained in preventive medicine because I wanted to do more about that. And the rest is history, as they say. I uh, wound up establishing a combined training program in internal medicine, preventive medicine at Griffin Hospital in Derby, Connecticut. And while running that program, had the opportunity to apply to the CDC to create a prevention research center at Yale we got that grant award and have been running that center ever since. And it's kind of the centerpiece of my career. Everything is focused on leveraging the power of, of healthy living to promote health, prevent disease.
0: Right. Now, I'm struck with, with the narrative at how sort of logical it sounds. And yet, for, for mo- most, most physicians don't get there. Uh, and especially if you talk about, you know, your dad is a cardiologist. It's you know highly technical interventionist um, field of medicine. Going to the ER and being kind of fixed up on a, on an emergency basis. Those are both sort of you know heroic interventions. And I think most most doctors, you know, kind of through through training, through um, dare I say, you know, pharmaceutical and, and device marketing. Never get to the point where where they say what you said. Like obviously, we can prevent eighty percent of the things that 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 take away years from life and life from years. How did you get there?
1: Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I think there's a balance to be struck. Hard. Um, I, I, I'm going to make the case in a minute that if lifestyle is the best medicine, that the spoon to get that medicine to go down is more cultural than clinical. And you know, I think what doctors are doing. Maybe mostly fine. It's only mostly fine because, of course, I'm a preventive medicine specialist, and I'm president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I, I definitely feel that clinicians should be at the tip of the spear, leading the way to more healthy lifestyle practices. So, absolutely agree with that part. On the other hand, it's interesting. We're having this discussion only a couple of days after I got out of the hospital with a diagnosis of viral meningitis and. Anaplasmosis, as it turns out, is a tick-borne disease. Uh, I was pretty damn sick. And, you know, when things were at their worst and I was having horrible shaking chills and crushing headaches, uh, I fully appreciated everything they did for me at the emergency room, including the the spinal tap that led to uh, the diagnosis, um, but the intravenous treatments and and all of the rest, uh, products of, of tech, if you will. What I think we need to recognize is that we can, in fact, prevent about 80% of all chronic disease. We can go a long way toward disease-proofing ourselves with healthy living, but we can't go all the way. and And the analogy I use routinely is, you know, essentially, if if health is our vessel and we are the captains, if you've got a seaworthy vessel and you are an able captain, you've got a much greater likelihood of a safe crossing. But we never get to control wind and wave. We control ship and sail, but not wind and wave. And stuff can happen. There's storms at sea that can cause the best ship to founder. And so we need a disease care system. We simply do. And that's what doctors are trained for. You know those countless hours of training are really not all about getting people to eat more broccoli. You know, they're really about intervening when things are completely falling apart and invasive hemodynamic monitoring, hard choices among different pharmacotherapies. So, yes, you're right. You know, again, I, I'm, I'm sort of the poster child to say doctors should be more involved in promoting healthy living. But honestly, where that works the best around the world, it's not doctors who are doing it. It's culture that's doing it. And, and we do still need a disease care system. So there, there's a balance to be struck. I'm very impressed with the example of the world's Blue Zones. Those are the places around the world that have the highest concentration of people who live to be 100. Uh, there have been five Blue Zones identified so far, uh, Icaria, Greece, Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California, and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And what they have in common is not you know, a terrific disease care system. What they have in common is a culture that prioritizes tobacco avoidance, healthy plant based diets, routine physical activity, enough sleep, uh, not high levels of stress, and strong sense of community, strong social connections. Feet, force, fingers, sleep stress and love. But again, the you know what, what propagates that is culture rather than clinics. So we've got work to do here, um, and some of it's clinical, but a lot of it's cultural.
0: Right. So and I certainly appreciate that and I've noticed in a lot of your writing you're you're really an advocate for you know the the one in a million patient uh, even you know even as as you're advocating that you know 80% of us could avoid problems you're you're acknowledging that there's a rare cancer in a 23 year old in your own experience of um ana- anaplasmosis, that that we need this system <laughs> in the same way that we right. need you know body shops and uh and, and people who can replace you know repair carburetors and engines for our cars but most of the time we just need a tune up and oil change
1: right exactly right howard and and you know there's more to say about this if we think about the finances of it all we can't afford the status quo you know the projections are that should current trends persist 40 percent of americans may be diabetic by 2050 you know that's almost one in two of our kids and grandkids but that also means 130 million people and there's just no way to pay that bill well if we use what we know to prevent the diseases we know how to prevent, yes we will be adding years to lives yes we will be adding life to years, that's the big prize really but as a byproduct of that we'll free up enormous resources which I suggest we use in a wide variety of ways to improve society but one of the ways we could use them is to provide more generous coverage for those diseases you can't prevent, you know, if if the costs of doing medical business go down dramatically, there shouldn't be an argument about providing state-of-the-art treatment for someone with a rare cancer. And as you say, right now I'm advocating for a young man, he's at University of Florida, student, 23 years old, has a stunningly rare cancer, alveolar soft part sarcoma, and there is treatment for it, but it's not FDA approved for that particular cancer because nothing is. But you know, his oncologist has identified it as effective and the insurer refuses to pay because it's not standard treatment. Well, you know, I'd like us to get past that. So, you know, I think there really is a confluence of of causes where we prevent what's preventable, we promote health, uh, we create better quality of life. And for those times, we can't dodge the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune because no matter what we do to take care of ourselves, we're still mortal, we're still vulnerable and stuff will still happen. But our society would have more resources, not less, to deal with that. So we could be kinder, we could be gentler, we could be more generous uh, for those people who do get sick, and I think we could raise the standard of care there, and everybody can win. We can win economically, and you know, most importantly, we can, we can win the currency that matters most to me, and that's the human currency.
0: Well, I love that message, because I have to say, I have a, a number of, of physician friends, and most of them don't feel heroic anymore. The way they did when they were in high school, when I do that, when they were sort of contemplating medicine, and your words about like, if we if we stop just giving pills to people for their diabetes and high cholesterol, and angina, which is totally preventable by lifestyle, you know, very close to 95, 96% of the time. And we get to focus on those those rare cases where where we can make medical history where we can make advances where we can make a huge difference where there's no one else who can help that feels like it would be very exciting for for physicians as opposed to wanting to protect their economic turf and and their you know um, monopoly over over prescribing um, bisphosphonates and and statins
1: I, I I agree with you you know it's interesting uh, we we had our annual meeting of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in San Diego last year. We have a, our next meeting coming up in the fall in Nashville. And, uh, you know, obviously, given what I do, I attend a lot of meetings, and I have never felt energy like this before. Uh, this really is inspiring. So, people in medicine who have forgotten what it feels like to be truly inspired, when we start talking about the potential to add, Style as medicine can do, they do get inspired, and then yes, I, you know I think there's an opportunity for us also because we're making a massively better use of our societal resources to focus on those heroic things that that modern medicine can do because that's quite amazing. You know, as, as Paul Simon said, these are the days of miracle and wonder. <laughs> uh, you know, medical technology. We, we spend most of our time criticizing the system these days, big pharma, big medicine, and, and there are real problems. Um, But the technology, the pharmacologic advances, the research advances, what clinical care can do really is quite amazing. And, you know, again, if we weren't so overwhelmed with a tsunami of of chronic disease we could prevent, I I agree with you completely. You know, I think we would find our way back to the thrilling, inspiring, deeply human heroism. Of medicine, where you know it's about making the best use of these incredible resources, but there's also room to be humanistic. I mean, that that's what drew us all into medicine in the first place. I don't think anybody goes into medicine thinking, "I want to play with high-tech toys." You know, if you really if that's your your calling, then you know you go into engineering or maybe NASA. Um, we really care about people, and then you know that the system can crush that out of you, or Uh, You know, the long hours can beat it out of you, or who knows, you know, eventually too much of that gets lost. But, you know, I can tell you, despite all the the complaining and the hand wringing, a lot of really, really good people go into medicine. A lot of my medical colleagues are among the best people I know, truly altruistic. If we improve the system, improve resource allocation, do a better job of making lifestyle the prevailing medicine, prevent what's preventable, I completely agree with you. I think there's opportunity for inspiration and, and heroism. Uh, and, and we can do a better job of helping those in most desperate need because we're not so worn out treating stuff that never needed to happen in the first place.
0: Right. One of my notes to ask you about is I noticed that your educational background, you have you have an MD and you also have a MPH, a master's in public health. And I was going to ask you about the tension between the two. But what I'm hearing makes me want to, you know, scratch that that question. And because I'm really hearing a, a passionate big tent approach that the, the two not only are the two not necessarily in conflict, but they really need to work together to create a healthy society.
1: Well, it, it, it's interesting. Howard. I think there's actually a bit of both. And, and my career in some ways is epitomite. at first uh, you get a master's in public health as part of your preventive medicine training, so everything about who I am and what I do professionally epitomizes the the fusion uh, of medicine and public health, where the population is the patient, and you're thinking about early intervention to prevent later calamity and all of that. So, yes, they absolutely go together. On the other hand, uh, I, I, for about a decade, was the director of medical studies and public health at the Yale School of Medicine, And what that meant was my primary office was at the School of Public Health, and it was my job to develop and run the curriculum for the medical students teaching public health. And there was unbelievable tension between the medical school and the School of Public Health. There was a constant need to try and get medical students to care about public health. It it seemed irrelevant to them since what they were training to do was hands-on clinical care. And there are tensions in the realm of policy and ethics, too. So, for instance if you look with the cold hard calculus of, of public health maximizing the good for the population you might say well i don't know if we should spend money on very costly treatments for very rare diseases because maybe that same amount of money could be used to vaccinate 10,000 people or you know do something else that would achieve greater net good at the population level i've long acknowledged that you know as, as a physician it's my job to advocate the very best of my ability to my utmost for my individual patient but if I were on a panel of public health people making decisions about policy I might make different decisions because what's most cost-effective at the population level and what's in the best interest of a particularly needy patient may not be the same but I think those are healthy tensions Uh, you know then the question becomes if we don't give somebody with a rare cancer, the very costly chemotherapy they need, will we, in fact, use that same money, those same resources to vaccinate 10,000 people? If the answer is yes, you know, we're talking about rational rationing, and, and maybe that's a conversation worth having. But generally in our culture, the answer is no. You know, it, it, there, there isn't that swap. Well, if we don't do this, we're going to do that. It's just, you know, we either do this or don't do this, but we don't translate that into the greatest possible net good. So they are interesting and I think some healthy tensions between medicine and public health because sometimes, you know, you really are looking at just the one patient. Sometimes you're looking at a population. By and large, they are more conjoined than anything. And after all, at the end of the day, there really is no public. You know, the public is some anonymous, amorphous thing. There's just people. And, you know, when we talk about prevention and, and eliminating 80% of all chronic disease, which is with the knowledge we already have, you know, that, that's not about some statistically anonymous mass. That's about you and me and the people we love and others just like us. You know, if we eliminated 80% of heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia, you and I would feel it. Our families would feel it. So, you know, I think one of the things we have to, to do better is, is, you know, cultivate the bridge between medicine and public health and show people. They're really the same. You know, if we do a better job in clinical medicine, the net effect is an improvement in public health. If we do a better job of achieving objectives at the level of public health, the lives we're talking about improving are real lives. You know, lives that are proximal to you and proximal to me. It's stuff we will steal. And, you know, I, I don't think we appreciate the extent to which we're talking about the skin we have in the game.
0: Mm. Well, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm struck by... How much of that tension is is maybe part of the system, the same way that the tension between, you know a defense attorney uh, and the legal system in general, you know the, the defense attorney ha- has an obligation in their case to defend. The you know the defendant as best they can, even though that person may be guilty. It's it's presumed that the tension contributes to this to the working of the system, but but how much of the tension is really unnecessary based on the 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 crazy resource allocation? I'm thinking like, you know, the way we do medicine. It's like if if everyone. Um, Came home and like drove their car into the side of their house and spent hours a day hitting their walls with a hammer. Then we would have a crisis in in like construction. Like there'd be no money to fix if someone's roof actually blew off. There'd be no money to fix it because all the people doing construction would be constantly repairing the the walls and sidings of our house.
1: <laughs> That's a very it's an interesting analogy. Yeah, I totally agree. So, um, you know, I I think. First, we over-medicalize, we over-treat, and we fail to use the most effective, most cost-effective, most universally accessible treatment we've got, and that's lifestyle as medicine, no question. Um, It's not just a clinical failing, it's a cultural failing, but it's a a colossal failing, and it's enormously costly. And so, yes, that is a flaw in the system, and the, the result is that you know, frankly, we're treating a lot of disease that didn't need to develop. The costs of that are high and and maybe exhausting and maybe unsustainable. And it's very much like you know we are abusing our homes and then running out of contractors to fix them. it wouldn't make any sense. You'd look at it and shake your head and say these people are crazy. You know, honestly, I'm a little bit inclined to do exactly that, and it you know it's not so much the clinicians who are taking care of the disease who are crazy. It's all of us, collectively as a culture, we're crazy. We wring our hands about epidemic obesity and and, and wring our hands and shed bitter tears over epidemic diabetes in in ever more of our children. And yet we continue blithely to run on Dunkin' and market multicolored marshmallows to kids as part of a complete practice. You know, can you spell hypocrisy? That's what it is. I mean, it's festering hypocrisy. We are willfully marketing the causes of rampant chronic disease and then lamenting the costs both in human terms and monetary terms of that rampant chronic disease. It's just plain nuts. It's got to stop. And and frankly, that's what my career is about. And right now we're being serious. But, you know, sometimes I'll just joke about this stuff because maybe the best way to get people to be aware of something and, and, and kind of snap out of it is is with humor. You know, I, I've long joked with my patients, you know, that we're sort of all raised to think that an all you can eat buffet is a bargain because you get more without spending more and say, but come on. I mean the reality is you're going to get fat at no extra charge and then spend a fortune to lose the weight that you gain for free. Wake up and smell the slim fast, this is not a bargain anymore. This is called <laughs> the Newcastle. You know, so there's a lot of that kind of thing going on where we just do it because we've always done it. And we're not really thinking. And it's time to start thinking. You know, in an age of epidemic diabetes and fatty liver, and, and even worse in ever younger kids, do we really want to be marketing multicolored marshmallows as breakfast just because they threw a multivitamin in at the end of the recipe? It's not. It's time to stop that nonsense.
0: Right. So you you talk a lot about this. Uh, so now twenty twenty something year old uh, paper that looked at what you call the actual causes of death. Right. So not. Uh, heart disease or stroke or cancer; those those are generally effects of the the main causes of death, which are you know you get food, food forks, feet and fingers. The, the these lifestyle issues. So, and you t- in, in your book, Disease Proof, you have a chapter that I found very moving about levees. About you know each of us can put up a sandbag or two, so, and, and I'm wondering what do you see as the actual causes of of those of those causes if 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 our behaviors are the problem and we're still as a society um you know marketing multicolored marshmallows and and sugary fake drinks to kids what where can we intervene where what are the causes where we have some leverage to do something about it
1: well you know i i think we can fix it all and and i i i think we will fix it all partly because we have no choice you know it's a bit like climate change Uh, we're very late to get this party started, but you know we're going to have to get pretty serious about it because the effects on on the planet and water supplies and crops are going to leave us with no choice. Similarly, here for disease prevention and lifestyle as medicine, we're running out of alternatives. In terms of the causes, they're quite profound. The the, the image that I've used or metaphor for almost 25 years now is a polar bear in the Sahara Desert, and uh, you know I've noted that polar bears are just are amazing creatures, marvels of survival, but very strictly adapted to a particular habitat. And if you put them in a totally different habitat, the things that make them marvels of survival, those very things would conspire against them. And in essence, that's what we are. Throughout most of human history, calories were relatively scarce and hard to get. You couldn't have too many. And physical activity was unavoidable. It was called survival, and everybody did it every day. And you couldn't have too little, and we've devised a modern world where physical activity is scarce and hard to get and calories are unavoidable, and we have no native defenses against that. So one of the things we're up against is something like 6 million years of evolutionary biology. And, you know, Essentially, the survival imperatives for our species since forever have been get more calories when you can and avoid physical work when you can because you may not have enough fuel to burn to do all the physical work if you do any more than you need to do to survive. And you know, here we are in a world of washing calories, labor-saving technology, and and it, you know, in in, this, in terms of evolution, it all happens stunningly fast. I mean, even the industrial revolution is is very recent history. But the, electro- the electronic revolution and the fast food revolution, all the things that really changed since World War II, boy, that's just an eye blink. So I think we're still catching up. So we've got six million years of evolutionary biology, fifteen thousand years of human civilization. Um, both working against us right now. Uh, You think about the the civilization impact, you know, food is the centerpiece of all social intercourse. You know, all holidays are celebrated with food, all social gatherings. Food has always been a way to show love and generosity. Um, the, The voices of mothers echo in our collective memory, clean your plate. Why? Well, because the worry of parents throughout all of human history has not been obese kids, it's been kids starving. And that was the worry. And so it's sort of a hand-me-down concern. It's an anachronism, but, you know, i mixing metaphors, but it's hard to turn the Titanic around. You've got a, a great big ship with an enormous amount of inertia going one way. You know, throwing it into reverse and, and backing out of the mess you're in takes time. And so I think we're being driven into epidemic obesity by evolutionary biology and culture. In essence, we get fat because we can't. Any prior generation would have gotten fat if they had tasty food constantly available and the opportunity to avoid physical work. We just happen to be the first generation or the, you know, the, the, the first of several, a uh, group of several generations uh, that has This is the world we live in. But we are an ingenious species, uh, and the challenge before us now really is the toxicity of our own success. We had a, you know, we struggled against shortages of food. We succeeded too well. We have too many calories. Uh, We struggled with the demands on our backs and our muscles to get through the day in clear fields and with boulders. And uh, we've done too well devising technology to do everything muscles used to do. Now our challenge is to overcome a world for which we are not adapted and return ourselves to balance and, you know, that's where the Levy metaphor comes in. When you think of how monstrous this challenge is, I mean, essentially everything about modern living makes it modern It's part of the problem. It's obesogenic. It's potentially morbidogenic. You said, well, think of that like a flood, a flood of highly processed, hyperpalatable, energy-dense, scroll-in-the-dark that you can't eat just one kind of foods, a constant flow of marketing dollars encouraging us and our kids to eat the foods that cause obesity and chronic disease wave after wave of technological advance, replacing the work of muscles. Think of that as an obesogenic flood. And then let's think about containing those floodwaters with a levee. Every empowering program, policy, practice we come up with is one sandbag in the levee. What we have to recognize is no one thing we do, no matter how good it is, will be enough. Any more than a single sandbag is ever enough to stop a flood. It doesn't matter how good the sandbag is. It's got to be part of something bigger, more comprehensive. Uh, there is no quick fix, there is no silver bullet, there is no magical sandbag. Um, but every day each of us can be part of the solution by adding a sandbag to the levee, or we can be part of the problem by abdicating and looking up passively as the floodwaters rise. So I'm hopeful that, you know, if if we think of this right, it it breaks down the, the problem, makes it manageable, breaks down the solution, turns it into something each of us can contribute to. Uh, And I very much hope and expect, Howard, to live to see the day when the ground at my feet dries out and we have a whole new world of opportunity opening opening up before us.
0: So I really I I appreciate your vision and your optimism. And some some part of me uh, wants to argue with it a little bit. You know, the the same the same voice in my head that wants to argue with my own hope and optimism. Um, Right. Which is like so on uh, on page 231 of uh, disease proof, you have an, e- an ecological model of diet, physical activity and obesity, and it, and it includes biology, demographics, f- physiological, social, cultural organization, physical policy. It reminds me of when I was studying public health. We had something called the precede proceed model, which was you know incredibly comprehensive, complex, prescriptive, descriptive, and I also found it overwhelming and discouraging. Like, right. like this, right. This, this is this is too much. And so it's too much. Yeah.
1: yeah, so I, I know that model well. Larry Green and uh, Matt Cluter, I believe. Um, and it's excellent. But you, you're right. I mean there, there here too, there's a balance to be struck between painting an accurate picture of the scope of the problem and the solution required. Uh, but also keeping it simple enough so that it's a paint by number enterprise and it really feels like we can get it done. Uh, Honestly, I I think we can simplify all of this. I mean, let's face it. Mostly, we're fat and sick because we smoke and need to stop. uh, Because we eat a lot of glow-in-the-dark junk foods and need to stop. uh, And we sit on our asses too much and need to get up and move around. I mean, you know, it, it just isn't rocket science. It really isn't. And there's an enormous amount we can do as individuals, and I do believe in personal responsibility. I just think it's important to know that the choices any of us makes are subordinate to the choices all of us have. And I think sometimes the best defense of the human body resides with the body politic. There's really no choice to make between collective responsibility and personal responsibility. We're going to need both to get to the prize. But, you know, we can start as individuals and families by caring, by acknowledging that, you know, if I eat more food that's really food and less stuff that glows in the dark and turns my fingers bright colors, uh, you know, with the powdery dust that, that, you know, phosphoresces, uh, I'd be better off. And I can do that, and I can try to have less junk in the house, and I can try to be more active every day, and I can take my kids with me. The little things we can do, you know, so, yes, we can bog down in the jargon of psychological models and and it it can become overwhelming but actually I think it's fairly simple and to, to use another analogy that I found helpful, I've compared obesity and chronic disease to drowning. If we treated drowning the way we treat obesity, We would certainly not have fences around pools. We would not have lifeguards at the beach. We would even have signs at the beach where there's a riptide saying, Come on in the water sign. Because after all, we encourage people to eat the very things that contribute most to obesity. Come on, eat this. So, you know, we would actively propagate drowning, and then we would be devising new treatments for it, right? Drugs to treat drowning. I mean, it, it would be, we'd look at it and say, You know, there's no intelligent life down here. Well, what I'm suggesting is we go in the other direction. We don't do that. I mean, every now and then someone drowns and we resuscitate. them. similarly, every now and then someone's going to get severely obese or or type 2 diabetes and we need to treat them. But, you know, what are the anti-obesity, anti-chronic disease analogs, defenses around pools, lifeguards at the beach, swimming lessons for everybody, Uh, signs that actually tell you the truth about the state of the water. I mean, you know, well, they would be things like, you know, educating everybody about healthy food choices, physical activity, beginning very early in school, teaching everybody basic cooking skills, uh, honest signage about uh, food and nutritional quality, which we could be providing in restaurants, cafeterias, supermarkets routinely and on and on it goes you know we could say, let's let's sort of line up the strategies we use to minimize drowning in water and do the same thing to minimize drowning in fatuous calories and labor-saving technology maybe that could work so yes we can bog down in the details of complex psychological and behavior change models but we needn't do that you know i think those are useful for experts we should share them with one another and cultivate insights. At the end of the day, I think we should be able to translate all of this into very simple, actionable language that anybody could understand, look at, and say, you know what? That feels doable. I mean, I, you know, I could do some of that. I could. I don't know that I can get it all done and I'm going to need help, but I could do some of that. And that's really all we need. If everybody does some, we come together and we can change the world. As far as my optimism goes... To be quite honest, Howard, it waxes and wanes. You know, I I get fed up. Uh, I'm a little bit disgusted. You know, I mean, it's 22 years since McGinnis and Seagy published that that stellar paper, Actual Causes of Death. And we've had over two decades to turn what they told us into routine cultural action. And we haven't done it. You know, we continue to market multicolored marshmallows as breakfast. We continue to put profit ahead of people. Uh, so, you know, there are times I lose patience and say, you know, if we're that fatuous, we probably deserve to be fat too. Um, but, you know, more often than not, I regroup and say, you know what? Um, this is, this is a huge turnabout for us. It really is. I mean, this really is reversing the momentum of evolutionary biology and human civilization. Nobody should expect this to come easy. Nobody should expect it to happen fast. Uh, But, you know, little by little we're going to realize the prize is luminous, the cost is untenable, we've got skin in the game, it's not about an anonymous public, it's about you and me and people we love and our children and our parents. And what needs to be done to fix it all isn't rocket science, it's actually stuff we could do. And I think little by little that understanding will capture us all. And there'll be no turning back, and then that will become the new momentum. So, I am hopeful. I, I am cautiously optimistic, but optimistic, just to say. Okay.
0: Good, good to hear. I mean, you know, one, one of the things that strikes me as a as a real difference in the metaphor is that there, there's no huge industry uh, making money from drowning. You know, may, maybe there is, but I, you know, uh, we don't have that kind of system. But as as you know as well as anyone the money that goes into multicolored marshmallows dwarfs the sums that go into promoting produce um, you know yeah
1: and i agree it's a very good point and and you're absolutely right i mean i suppose you know if our culture were were perverted enough there would be a way to profit from drowning but we're not doing that but we definitely are profiting from you know drowning calories so you're quite right so you know, there, I would say I, I applaud, encourage my colleagues who are working on changing the supply side through policy, legislation and litigation, whatever strategies are at their disposal. Uh, but a lot of my work is is focused on changing the demand. You know, the thing about big food and, and that profiteering is, you know, we tend to talk about the food supply and those and practices as if they're immutable things. You know, it's, it's as if they're the Himalayas. They're just part of the landscape. You're always going to have to deal with them. And it's just not true. And, and the evidence we have that it's not true is really quite indelible. You think, for example, about the height of interest in the Atkins diet. Within about three months, certainly not more, Every supermarket in the United States went from having nothing labeled as low-carb to having a whole array of new products labeled as low-carb. Now, for the most part, they were low-carb junk. I'm not saying any of this stuff was a good idea. Uh, I'm just saying that the, the supply is remarkably responsive to the demand. So if we could rally around Michael Pollan's wisdom, food, not too much, mostly plants, you know, if, if what we demanded wasn't low-fat junk or low-carb junk or gluten-free junk, but actually good food, we really, you know, we, we devoted ourselves, you know, as individuals, as families, and our multitudes, to learning just the minimum we need to know to demand better food overall and, and to express that desire at the cash register. Well, frankly, the food supply is going to come along. And we're, we're starting to see some of that. Uh, you know, McDonald's sales have been suffering. Soda sales have been suffering. Big food companies are taking at least some junk out of their junk food. I, you know, we've got a long way to go. I'm not fooling myself about any of that. Um, but the supply will change in response to the demand. So you're right. You know, this all analogies break down at some point. And while I think we are drowning in calories, and that's really what obesity is all about, and could handle it in many of the ways we handle drowning, you're right. There's a huge profit to be made against around the issue of grounding and calories, and we have to overcome that. And I think the best way to do that is to change the demand so that that profit goes away. There, there is no profit in selling people junk they won't buy. And we don't have to buy it.
0: Right. So when, when I go around, I give talks about the, the you know, healthcare system and people being able to take their health into their own hands, very much along the lines of the research you've done and the work you've done. And I, I ask people... After showing them the evidence of, say, the, the relative benefits of statins and a whole food plant based diet, and how many of your doctors ever told you about this, um, I've never seen a hand go up. So, you know, so there, there is a, I think, a huge um, burden to be laid at the, at the foot of medicine to say that, that it's, you know, it's simply not, we're, we're not telling people the truth, there's, uh, you know, that yeah, we want to treat the individuals. We want to treat the, the rare heroic cases, but we also want to give people evidence-based options. Uh, where where do you where do you see that as part of the solution?
1: Well, that's why I became president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. That's really the the mission of this organization, is to advance that very cause. That that physicians. Must be using therapeutic lifestyle intervention more, and you know it's interesting because this is not neglect that's happening at the top of the food chain. The the, the expert panels that put together treatment guidelines, whether it's for lowering blood pressure, improving blood sugar, uh, lowering uh, high cholesterol, they all begin with therapeutic lifestyle change. And, you know, frankly, I, I, I don't know that they necessarily capture the best practices like, you know, the, the potential plant-based diets, the work that David Jenkins, for example, has done to show that it can lower cholesterol as effectively as patents with a portfolio diet. Uh, but, you know, they do emphasize vast improvements over the prevailing American diet. Uh, so the recommendations are there, but the practice really isn't. Why not? Well, because... You know, essentially we've met the enemy and it is us. It is all of us. And and what I mean by that is patients may not be willing to do it because it's too hard for them. In a culture that runs on junk, in a culture that encourages the use of every conceivable labor-saving technology, uh, in a culture that propagates insomnia and crazy hectic schedules with no time for physical activity, most people find it extremely hard to be active every day and to eat well. So if a doctor tells you to do that, you may say, I can't. And then what's the doctor supposed to do? The problem is, you know, if we really think about a granular approach to healthy living, it's almost like teaching people a language they don't know. I mean, it's all well and good for me to say you ought to eat more vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds. But if you say, tell me how, what do I buy when I shop? How do I engage my kids? Uh, what do I cook? What's for breakfast? What's for lunch? What's for dinner? Well, you know, obviously we can refer to dietitians, and you know, we've got other members of the team to help us out. But frankly, most busy clinicians simply don't have the resources to deal with all of that. You know, it's like a patient saying, okay, you're talking to me in a language. I don't speak. Teach me that language. Uh, you know, and you just say, I can't. I really just can't do that. Good luck. And they're out of your office. So the system isn't designed for this. And, and frankly, you know, as I said at the beginning, It's not exclusively or even – it's not even preferentially a clinical enterprise. Uh, So, you know, for instance, one of the things I've contributed to public health is a nutrient guidance system in supermarkets called NuVal. One to 100, the higher the number, the more nutritious the food. The company scored over 110,000 foods. were in over 2,000 supermarkets. Well, you know, if you're a doc and and you know about that system and know you can trust it because you've read the published papers – You don't have to teach someone what to shop for. You just say, hey, shop at this store and use that system. Well, we need more of that. We we need those things that take the burden off of the clinician. So, you know, to some extent, the clinician's overwhelmed because the patient's overwhelmed. And then there's the fact that historically we haven't done a great job teaching docs to be enablers of lifestyle change or to be very knowledgeable about nutrition. Now, I've been working against that. My entire career, I've now published three editions of a textbook uh, on nutrition for clinicians to try and help climb that mountain. But it's a, it's a high mountain to climb because encounters get shorter and shorter. Uh, demands on docs get you know, steeper and steeper. And you know if you've got that combination of a patient who is, that lacks self-efficacy for these changes and maybe disinclined to try that hard, and a doc who lacks self-efficacy for the counseling and maybe disinclined to try that hard, guess where everybody lands? Here, take this pill. And that's of course aided and abetted by the pharmaceutical industry, which is sending young, attractive pharmaceutical reps into your office, encouraging you to write those prescriptions in the first place. So, do we have a problem? <laughs> yeah, we've got a problem, but it's you know it's multifaceted, and that's why honestly i think the best way to fix this is a combination of reforms in medical education and practice and we're working on that but at the very same time reforms in our culture so that the docs don't have to fix all of this but can say you know make sure your kids uh... you know are are getting this program in their schools and make sure you're using this program in your supermarkets and did you is your pastor aware of this program for churches and you know, we really start to circle the wagon. So we, we've got this combined approach where we, we take maximal advantage of what can and should have in clinics, including the use of, of lifestyle therapy, but cultural elements that support that and make it easier for both doctor and patient to get there from here. Okay,
0: So that, that I think, brings us nicely to the Glimmer Initiative and the True Health Coalition. So can you, Describe what what that is, where where the idea came from, and what what your goals are.
1: Well, there there are many ways to get into the discussion, but I think a good one is, is uh, President Kennedy's aspiration to put footprints on the moon. And you know, if we think about the fact that we accomplished that, it, it's really testimony to a couple of things. Uh, one is we wanted to get there. Uh, two is we are a, a pertinacious, ingenious, resourceful species. So when we really care, passionately about getting something done, uh, we're, we're remarkably capable. And three is there was no argument about where to find the moon. You know, there were no competing theories about you know there being multiple moons and which one to pick. And, you know, There was a moon. Everybody agreed where it was. And we were able to aim our rockets and, and get there. Well, you know, the problem with healthy living is um, there's a, you mentioned the profit, you know, from from the status quo and propagating disease. Well, there's a lot of profit and confusion. You know, if ever we all knew for sure what healthy eating was, uh, nobody could sell the next best-selling fad diet book because nobody would buy it, right? I mean, what could it possibly tell us that we don't already know? Imagine if we were selling books about you know alternative mixtures of air. You really shouldn't be breathing the atmosphere of the Earth. And there's a whole book about a theory that you know the ratio of oxygen to nitrogen should be this, no, it should be that. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, we're not interested in that because you know we we all accept the fact that the atmosphere of our planet is the atmosphere to which we adapted, and that's you know we shouldn't be polluting the air. But the air we've got is the air we should breathe. Everybody seems to be okay with that. Well, with diets. Um, you know, we've managed to talk ourselves into the notion that all of these crazy, you know, pick my theory approaches are worth our, not just our attention, but our money. You know, and basically, uh, you know, fad diet comes out promising us, uh, you know, some magical solution to our weight and health issues. And we sort of go into a trance and reach for our credit cards. The big publishers are profiting from that. The authors are, publishing from, uh, are profiting from that uh... the media are profiting from that because of course you know it's on the morning shows every day and all of this is pseudo confusion um, we are not clueless about the basic care and feeding of homo sapiens the fundamentals of healthy living including healthy eating are unbelievably clear in the research literature they're unbelievably clear in the world around us uh, for example the diets of the blue zones and we've got to to show the public that we know what we know uh, because, you know, again, we never would have gotten to the moon if we hadn't agreed where it was. We are never going to get the culture-wide healthy eating, healthy living if we don't acknowledge that we know where that is. But we do. So the Glimmer Initiative is really all about that. It's about, you know, no one voice uh, is, is can rise above the din. No one voice has the authority or the volume in this age of the blogosphere to be heard above the discord in our culture, above the statics, only in unity is there sufficient strength. So I'm working to pull together a global coalition of you know basically a who's who uh, in the world of health promotion, lifestyle as medicine, nutrition and diet, uh, public health practice, come together and say, we agree. We agree about the fundamentals of healthy eating, healthy living, and you know those fundamentals are, as we've been discussing. Don't smoke. Be active. Sleep enough. Manage stress. Strong social connections. And in the area of diet, real food, not too much, mostly plants, wholesome foods, sensible combinations. Nothing but close in the dark. But it's, it, you know again, it's not rocket science. And that diet can be vegan, it can be vegetarian, it can be Mediterranean. Um, but you know, it looks nothing like the typical American diet. Well, the council of directors of this True Health Coalition are already about two hundred strong from about 25 countries and the imprimatur of this group is quite incredible. We have three former U.S. surgeons general. We have a former commissioner of the U.S. FDA. We have deans of nutrition schools, chairs of nutrition departments, names everybody's heard of. Uh, we have luminaries in the culinary arts like Sam Katz, who is the former White House chef. Uh, we have leaders in the sustainability space. And, and frankly what impresses me most about the folks who've answered this call, is that we have a spectrum all the way from vegan to paleo. Some of the world's most prominent advocates of a vegan diet, Neil Barnard, Dean Ornish, Cal Esselstein, T. Colin Campbell, all on the council. But also, maybe surprisingly, some of the world's most prominent advocates for a paleo diet, Lauren Cordain, Mel Conner, Boyd Eaton, also all on the council because, A., they're willing to say in public, we agree more than we disagree. I mean, the paleo folks, you know, they eat game and they eat a lot of plants. And the vegans eat a lot of plants and don't eat the game. But their plates look more like one another than either of them looks like McDonald's. And they're willing to say so. And the other thing is, you know, the, the folks who are knowledgeable about the paleo diet say, you know, I mean, for those of us who do this, we understand that, you know, this is not a practice for 7 billion people. This is something that a select few can do you know, maybe high-end athletes, um, but we're talking about, you know, plants and wild animals, essentially, animals living their native lifestyle who, in turn, are eating those, those plants. We're not talking about mass-produced meat and so forth. The public, I think, has the, the impression that these two are, you know, just are at opposite poles and, and, you know, there's no agreement there. Uh, and since there's no agreement, we don't need to pay attention to either of them. But the reality is they're more alike than different. I think it's a game-changing proposition. So this council is growing weekly, and what we look to do is you know, have it become um, large enough, diverse enough, that almost no matter who your hero is in the world of nutrition and health promotion, he or she is on this council, so you can't ignore us. You know, Essentially, it's the Horton, here's a who approach, to health promotion. We're not saying we are here. We're saying we agree, and you should too. And then we're looking to build around this – a global initiative that focuses on changing medical education and medical practice, the things we've been discussing, that facilitates culture change like the Blue Zones Project, uh, but that most importantly engages in an ongoing state-of-the-art communication campaign so the public unfailingly knows that we know what we know. In other words, we know where there is for health promotion just as we knew where there was for the moon and once we know where there is, again, we're an ingenious, resourceful, pertinacious species. I think we can get there from here. But Glimmer is committed, the True Health Coalition is committed to establishing incontrovertibly that we know where the promised land of healthy living resides.
0: Mm. I, I love the model and I love, I love the big tent. And also as someone who has been, you know, spent many years now in the plant-based community, uh, I get a little nervous at at the the breadth of the coalition. Um, so I'm, I don't know if I'm asking you to speak as a as a politician now, but you know one, one of the things that you wrote was that um, you're looking for evidence based and non-controversial views, the things that everyone can agree on. What if there's a uh, a split? What if some things are evidence based, but they're controversial? Like I, you know, I, I'm the co-author of a book with Colin Campbell called "The Low Carb Fraud." So I would say that there, there's a great deal of evidence that a low carb lifestyle of whatever stripe um, is harmful. What, what do you What do you do with with a big tent when there's when there's evidence being brought forth that one side doesn't like?
1: Yeah. So you know, for me, this whole thing is like a Venn diagram. There's massive overlap. There really is. Uh, and then there are differences of opinion. And, you know, frankly, what we have done very well in our culture is emphasize the differences of opinion. And I love Colin in the China study. Um, you know, I'm not totally convinced, despite his writing, that, that you know, animal protein, per se, it, you know, is, is the enemy to human health. I think it may be the company it keeps, because the kind of animal food we eat in the modern world is – a marked departure from the kind that's native to our diet. You know I think the evidence that we're physiologically adapted to be omnivorous is is irrefutable. But we have choices to make. and and you know, I think no matter what arguments the the folks who who believe in you know health benefits of paleo diet want to make, if they're even a little bit thoughtful, they can acknowledge that, you know, this cannot be the approach for 7 billion home sapiens. So we have to think in terms of sustainability and environment and, and so forth. So, you know, I think if the, if the discussions are holistic, then there's even more overlap, you know, because I think human health is now only part of the equation. We're not going to have healthy people on the planet that isn't healthy. So if we adopt the big view um uh, there was already a lot of overlap before real food, not too much, mostly plants. I mean again that, that that's pretty much common ground. Uh, if we then start talking about to say the planet and the climate and water consumption, you know, everybody pretty quickly has to concede all roads lead in the same general direction. And then are there still some differences of opinion? Yes. But that's where I'd say let's not make perfect the enemy of good. We don't know how to prevent all chronic disease. We only know how to prevent 80% of chronic disease. So should we walk away, say to hell with it? Or should we prevent the 80% we know how to prevent? We don't agree about everything, but we mostly agree. Should we say to hell with it and fail to put to good use what we do agree on because there's a little bit left to bicker about? Or should we say, "Let's, let's bicker behind closed doors, but let's open the door and sing kumbaya so the public knows how much agreement there is? And those people who simply won't agree, you know, the, the true iconoclasts who don't want to acknowledge that that we have common knowledge at all, but want to emphasize their narrow theory, they're not on the council. And, you know, some of them I regret because some of them have significant influence. So, for example, you know, I, I personally think, and that's just my opinion, but I think Grain Brain, the book Grain Brain is a travesty. Uh, I think you know, wheat belly is a travesty, you know, the idea that the things that are responsible for us being fat, stupid, and sick are whole grain, and it's just silly. It's at odds with all of the evidence. Now, are there concerns about genetic modifications and so forth? No, maybe, but they're massively overblown in those books. But the the author of neither of those books was invited to be on this council because their entire platform is predicated on refuting the common knowledge, the the, the consensus. So, yes, I mean, you do have to draw the line somewhere. But, you know, when I speak to Lauren Cordain, who's very well known as an advocate for the paleo diet, you know, Lauren said, you know, I, I eat a wide variety of plant foods, minimally processed. And, you know, I'm, frankly, you know, if the vegans want to eat grains and I don't, fine. But, you know, still, um, his diet is much more like a vegan diet than it's like a typical American diet. And I think that's important. So you're absolutely right. There's a balance to be struck. Some of the people that you know might surprise you do find their way onto the council because they are willing to endorse the principles. The, the final thing I'll say here, Howard, is that I'm not asking anyone on this council to endorse anyone else on the council. This is not a popularity contest. This is not about us saying, I think everybody else here is swell. What I'm asking everyone to do is review the principles. And they're based on McGinnis and Segey. They're based on the body of work that shows us this is the stuff associated with an 80% reduction in chronic disease. This is the most evidence-based stuff. I'm basically spelling that out and saying, review this. If you agree that this is what matters most and are willing to stand up and be counted, join us. And if not, don't. And most of the, the members of the who's who in, in health promotion are joining us. And there are some who are not. Um, but again, I think we'll achieve critical mass. I don't think we're there yet, but I think enough of us will come together about these fundamentals. And by the way, you know, in terms of low carb, basically I agree with you. I mean, you look around the world at the diets associated with lifelong good health, sustainability, um, all the things that really matter. Uh, none of them is is really low carb. So you know, I think that's a departure from the evidence anyway. You know, that said, people who for whatever reason are thinking that, you know, that they their personal preference is, is a diet that's higher in protein, lower in carb, you know, David Jenkins is a member of the council and, you know, he published the Eco Atkins study showing that if you wanted to do low, low carb, you could do it with plant-based protein and achieve better metabolic outcomes than you could with animal protein. So, you know, even there, there's a way to common ground,
0: I think. I'm, I'm struck going back to the very beginning of our conversation where you said, well, this is really a cultural issue. And th- it sounds, seems like what you're creating with the Glimmer Initiative and um, and the True Health Coalition is a place where people can get together un- under a con- in a context where they get to be civil. So, you know, there's what makes news is when Neil Barnard... Um, debates Joel Salatin on, you know, resolve, never eat anything with a face or a mother, or Colin Campbell is invited to debate Eric Westman, no one's inviting them to sit down and say, where do you guys agree? And
1: sit down and say, kumbaya, Kumbaya, exactly. So, you know, and the debates are fun, and, 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 you know, they're riveting and titillating and all of that. And I think they can continue, but I think they have to continue against the backdrop. Of agreement. You know, again, I'm sure the engineers that worked for NASA didn't agree about everything or the best way to do everything, the best way to build everything. And, you know, I I, I think, you know, whether those were fodder for public debate or not, you know, those disagreements are probably healthy. They're conducive to hybrid vigor. You know, I'm an academic. That's what we do. We parse. We ask questions. It's all good. As long as it doesn't interfere with exercising the fundamental understanding so you know again if there is a basic body of knowledge about the key principles of healthy eating and they transcend you know the the debate that that Neil and others are having or that Colin and others are having or that anybody's having with anybody you know if that's the bedrock well then we need to be standing on the bedrock and then have the debates we can't be having the debates in a way that's so destabilizing that you know we're all falling over and nobody's standing on anything and that's what we've been doing. You know, we, I, I don't mind asking questions about the part we don't know. And, and to be quite honest, there's a lot we don't know, and there's stuff we're not likely to know anytime soon. Uh, you know, I think if we're completely honest about veganism, if you want to make the case based on sustainability, kinder, gentler treatment of our, our planetary cohabitants, uh, and evidence of human health, pretty damn hard to argue with. It really is. But if you want to just make the case based on human health and say, we know for sure, and I've had this argument with Neil, and I've had it with Colin and Cal and Dean and, you know, the usual suspects. Uh, If you want to make the case that we know for sure that a vegan diet is better for human health than, say, an optimized Mediterranean diet, I'd say, show me. You know, I don't think we do. I mean, where's the randomized trial that took neonates as soon as they were done with their mother's breast milk? and assigned them to a Mediterranean or a vegan diet for a hundred years and followed them all that time. And we haven't done it, we're not likely to do it. You know, and, and so I actually think that the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee for twenty fifteen did a masterful job, got it just right. And and they they very appropriately emphasize plant based diets. And they very appropriately and specifically say we need to eat less meat. But they also very appropriately, and, and you know, I think in an evidence-based fashion, say that the specific dietary pattern you choose, as long as it adheres to this theme, um, you know, is free to roam with it. It's up to you, because then it's a matter of picking a diet that works for you and your family. And and you know, I think we also have to be pragmatic. You know, we know whatever the merits uh, of entirely plant-based diets, we're not going to become you know a vegan society anytime soon. We just want to move in that general direction. So again, I think you know, if, if we're pragmatic, if we're honest about the state of the evidence, uh, what we wind up doing is being quite adamant about the basic theme and a lot less adamant about the specific variants on the theme. I think that that's more inviting. I think that you know, it empowers people because it shows a clear direction we need to move in, but it also leaves them with options. People generally like that. It allows people the the potential to love food that loves the back. We're not being too prescriptive. So that's the spirit, really, that that infuses this initiative. I'm asking people to rally around these fundamental, truly well-established truths and not to bog down in the stuff we don't know. I want, you know, that the science should continue. We should get answers we don't have. We should do more trials, and and ultimately they should inform the, the common body of knowledge. It just makes no sense to squander the potential to slash chronic disease rates by 80 percent based on knowledge we have because we can't slash them by 100 percent and because our knowledge is not perfect. If ever there was a classic case of making perfect the enemy of good, that would be it.
0: Right. Well, I love your metaphor of if my foot was on fire, I wouldn't do a clinical trial. I'd reach for a pail of water. (laughs)
1: That's right. Exactly right. We know enough. We know enough, and, and again, the theme is very, very clear, and the theme, you know, is totally concordant with your mission. And you know, again, the, the issue of plant-based eating, you know, it, it's it's clearly a salient feature of health-promoting diets. But as I say, you know, the game has has gotten bigger than that. It's about it's about us and our health. It's about sustainability. It's about our aquifers. It's about our climate. It's about biodiversity. And when you start factoring in all of those critical considerations, it just becomes that much more salient.
0: Right. So for folks who want to um, stay in touch, follow up here, read your, your read your latest. Um, I have to say your your HuffPo and U.S. News and World Reports and LinkedIn pieces are really entertaining uh they so they're great reading as well as being you know really important things that we should be thinking about um uh, so for for the sort of the, the general public and for physicians clinicians other people in professional healthcare who want to be a part of this how do they stay in touch with you
1: well i, I would love for anyone who who finds the glimmer concept the true health coalition compelling i'd love for them to join us so really all you need to do is, is Google Glimmer Initiative. You'll pull it right up. And and anyone can join the True Health Coalition. So if you're tired of you know, the Discord drowning out the agreement and preventing us from using what we know, join us. And then uh, in terms of following me, I'm active in all of the usual social media. I have uh, a LinkedIn account, a Facebook account, a Twitter account, and you can find your way to all of those via my Website, which which is davidcatm.d.com, uh, and I, I think among those, um, probably Twitter's the, the the single easiest way to keep up with my writing and other things. I think important. because if I find if I write it and I think you ought to read it, I tweet it. Uh, but if I find it and I think it's important and and we, we ought to read it, I tweet it as well. So those would be the uh, the principal ways of of keeping track.
0: Awesome. Well. Dr. David Katz, this is I, I feel so much I actually feel better. So it's it's really nice. I do a lot of these interviews and I feel sometimes I feel more virtuous and sometimes I feel smarter. And in this case, I, I feel more empowered and hopeful. So that's uh, as, as, as well as, um, you know, smarter and virtuous. So I, I really appreciate the the pragmatic approach combined with uh, with your with your passion and with your ability to create coalition and, and civil discourse around this topic. So I really, really, Thanks. really appreciate your spending the time with us today.
1: Thanks so much, Harold. I appreciate you giving me this chance to help uh, preach the gospel as I see it, and I, and I hope we've got some converts. Thank
0: you very much. Amen, brother. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs>
0: right. be, be well. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Katz, MD. Your action step for today is to check out the Glimmer Initiative online. See what you think of it. See if you agree that folks who typically debate and argue and disagree in public can and should come together to promote this very uncontroversial evidence about how we can all live healthier lives. See what you think. I'm curious. And you can leave comments on plantyourself.com underneath this particular. Podcast post. I'm pleased to announce that the Plant Yourself Podcast has its very first sponsor, which is me. I've just opened up my consulting practice, a wellness consulting practice called Triangle Be Well, and more about that in the coming weeks as I get my act together. But just planting a seed right now that I'm available for consultations to help folks get off the medical treadmill of disease management, and explore the real possibility of true wellness. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to iTunes and leaving a review and some stars. You can share it on social media. You can tell friends and family about it, email them links. And one thing that really helps is feedback to me. So if you want to go to plantyourself.com, find this or any episode and leave a comment that really helps me understand how to make it better, and it helps me figure out who to get as guests and what sorts of things to ask them. The garden is slowing down considerably, except now the work's picked up because we're starting to prepare the beds for fall. We're putting in amendments, we're checking out the soil, we're digging deep. And what we're the, the backbreaking labor I'm doing right now is going to reward me, I hope with succulent greens and wonderful cruciferous vegetables and beautiful roots come October and November. So, I hope that all the soil that you are tilling now will provide you with a sweet harvest of things that you love in the months and years to come. And as always, be well, my friends.